Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of The Business of Cyber. My guest today is Itamar Sher, who is the CEO and co-founder at Seal Security, which is currently a startup operating in stealth stage based in Tel Aviv. There's a number of things that we covered during the conversation today, but uh, for me, personal highlight was just sort of the overarching discussion about sort of the pros and cons of a company operating in stealth stage. Um, we talked a little bit about Itamar's, of course, background and history and context for what sort of led to him founding Seal Security. But um, as they've been sort of developing you know, early design partners and uh, rolling out kind of the beta version of the product, we talked a little bit about the point they're at now and kind of turning the corner and starting to uh, broaden the uh, sort of aperture of the company with more more pronounced sales and marketing and sort of the the big launch that will be happening after they they come out of stealth so interesting conversation and uh hope you guys enjoy well the party is off to a good start you tomorrow welcome to the show Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Thank you for having me, Joey. Very happy. Very excited to be here. Good. Well, uh, I appreciate you being here. So as a way to uh, maybe sort of set things up, would love to get to know you a little bit more. So why don't you tell me a little bit more about sort of yourself, your background, and how you got into cyber? Yeah, uh, for sure. So I started my career uh, with cyber at the age of 13. So I got engaged with game cracking, actually, <laughs> doing some illicit things, but we probably can talk a lot about that <laughs> issue. But uh, um, leading up to it, I kind of went deeper and deeper into the, into the technological stuff, uh, leading into Unit 8200, where I became just an official hacker, so to say. Uh, served for five years. This is also where I met my two other co-founders. Uh, leading up after the army, I uh, was the first employee at a cybersecurity startup called Symmetria. Uh, we had a we develop a develop a deception orchestration platform, and uh, yeah, ever since then I've been in the cybersecurity industry. Also led a business uh, consulting. Um, for uh, cybersecurity vendors that try that are performing uh, research endeavors. And yeah, so I've been around uh, for quite a few years by now and uh, excited to share maybe a little bit about my experience. Yeah, cool. Okay. And as you kind of reflect on maybe just the sort of things you've learned or experienced in, in the industry, what are some of the big changes that you've noticed? Oh, that's a good, great question. So if we offline, you know, it's our net real, it was 2015. So it was kind of like in the middle of the transition between on-prem and cloud. So the first thing to know is was Symmetria was first and foremost an on-prem solution. So it was also interesting for us to kind of see. So, you know, first of all, like the first mistake that I kind of experienced in my um in my career is, you know, targeting the wrong trajectory, so to say. So uh, we decided to target on-prem uh, networks and on-prem organizations, uh, but we sort of like watched how cloud adoption really kicked off and how newer organizations didn't adopt on-prem installations at all. So um, this is one uh, example of uh, a very interesting trend that we noticed uh, within the cybersecurity industry. 
The second one is the transition from visibility into remediation, where I think uh, previously a lot of vendors became known and, uh, you know, best in uh, best in class, so let's call it that way, for providing adequate visibility for users. But um, right now, we see in the last know, couple of years transitioning into just from, organi- from vendors that just provide more alerts and more noise, let's call it that way, for uh, users to vendors that are actually helping users to achieve and fulfill the mission of uh, securing a company. Yeah. That's a really good point. Would love to maybe just dig into both of those, but we'll we'll start in in kind of reverse order. Um, I've heard a lot about that second point, both from CISOs who've experienced that problem, where they say, "Like I, I'm sick of just things telling me I have problems, right, and issues to fix," uh, and then also from vendor CEOs like yourself who sort of recognize that and are now building solutions to uh, be part of maybe the new age of cyber solutions where you're actually solving problems, not just notifying them of problems. So uh, when you think about that as a sort of trend in the market, how are you building towards that with what you're working on at SEAL? So I think it really started from day one. So we started ideating on SEAL July last year, my co-founders and I, and we came into it. uh, So uh, maybe just the first of all, just mentioning what SEAL does. So we're focusing on open source vulnerabilities. Uh, we want to give companies the ability to remediate and patch vulnerabilities in their open source supply chain at scale. Um, which, if you look at just existing numbers, most of the users of our users uh, came into uh, starting to working with SEAL with about 10% of patching capacity for vulnerabilities. And uh, we just essentially want to switch it around to having the 90% patching capacity and you know, the 10% of like the extra that is hard to patch. Um, so we essentially, from our experience coming into the security, we had a, uh, we used the, the tools essentially, the, the discovery and prioritization tools available um, right now in the market. And I'm not gonna name specific vendors, but we, every month we would get the vulnerability report from the application security, uh, you know, hundreds of vulnerabilities without being given any concrete ability to actually scale the patching and the remediation of for these hundreds of vulnerabilities. So we knew that there was a gap in the market coming into it, in, into this, but we focused in the market validation phase, essentially, um, trying to understand why it is. Because we had our experience and it was, it, and it's obviously good coming into it with your own personal experience and, and opinion about it and how it should be done. But it was obviously, it's very subjective and we wanted to make sure that it's, uh, that other users essentially are sharing the same, the same experience that we encountered trying to deal with this issue. And also trying to understand why they even care about it. And, you know, this is another very important thing to ask. So. Um, first of all, they mentioned, we started with why they even care about it. So they mentioned, first of all, we have our own internal risk management. It's obviously very important to us to try to lower the risk for our organization. But the second aspect, and this is maybe um, a topic that is less discussed uh, out there, is about the external security posture of the organization. And what I mean by that is that in recent years, 
ever since the Biden's uh, um, directive for SBOM, we've, we're seeing a trend where software vendors are constantly providing their SBOM and you know, other such means to their uh, customers to enable them to attest and verify the supply chain and security, essentially, of your software that you are providing to them. So ever since that process started happening, you know, just in the last, uh, last few years, organizations are now struggling not only with internal risk management about vulnerabilities, but also how it portrays to their users. So this is kind of like an interesting dynamic that is being uh, played out right now, where a lot of, and I think this is also kind of like why CISOs are starting to demand remediation solutions, because suddenly it's not only a matter of them justifying it to their boards or uh, whatever, the management uh, uh, in, the, in their organization, it's also a matter of justifying it to the users, to the client, and making sure that you appear to be a secure and a well-established vendor. And um, essentially, SEAL is one of those businesses that really is focusing on delivering exactly that, just helping users not only reduce the risk, but also making sure that uh, they're able to kind of project it outwards uh, to their users as well. Because if you think about it, just uh, prioritization solutions, yeah. uh, you know, if, if I'm showing you as a vendor as a cybersecurity solution, this vulnerability is not relevant because X, Y, and Z, and Z, it's very difficult for you as a vendor to communicate it to, to your users and them being able to validate it uh, effectively. So it's kind of right. like this is now the message we are in right now and SEAL is hopefully able to really uh, help our users essentially solve uh, this specific issue. Can you elaborate a little bit for me? I'm just not as as familiar on, uh, I know the executive order happened a couple of years ago and just could you elaborate on sort of the line item that you're talking about with the, the SBOM? Yeah, for sure. So essentially what the directive states is that if you are selling a software vendor that is selling to a federal, to a federal agency uh, or you know, uh, anything similar, then um, you are obligated to provide your SBOM as part of the, um, of the, of the communication. And this right. is meant essentially as a way for the federal agencies to being able to secure their uh, supply chain. Uh, and specifically their open source supply chain in our case. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so, it's like, so it trickles down in a way because as a yeah. software vendors become more mature, they're obviously being, become FedRAMP and they want to target you know, the federal agencies. But as this process is coming into uh, maturity, it's like it trickles down to the smaller companies as well, where right. nowadays you see insurance companies, banks, and uh companies in these sectors requiring SBOM from their software vendors as well. So yeah, an interesting, uh, yeah, an interesting uh, trend uh, to say the least. Yeah, for sure. Now I was going to ask about that is if, if you're starting to see a similar demand from commercial organizations as a byproduct of the, the federal requirement, not just federal agencies. So it seems like, yeah, large organizations are starting to, to ask for something similar. Yeah. 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 Yeah, cool. Okay. <clears throat> so I know the business is uh, is still in sort of the early stages. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more just sort of in more granular detail, 
kind of what that's like uh, and and what you're working on. So I know you and I talked a little bit about it last time we met, but I think it'd be beneficial just to um, maybe hear you describe <clears throat> kind of what it's like to be in quote unquote stealth stage uh, and like what you're working on right now. Yeah, you know, it's a funny question because, you know, the entire concept of getting out of stealth, so... It started, and you know, it's considered, you know, uh, best practice essentially for software vendors and you know companies and startups uh, essentially to do this process and getting out of stealth to use this PR opportunity uh, to leverage it to market adoption essentially and to drive uh, sales efforts. So, so, without undergoing the coming out of stealth, you're essentially uh, running the playbook sort of crippled in a way because. Mm-hmm. You cannot use any. Um, um, you cannot use any external resources or communication, essentially, to promote your messaging and the way that you uh, and pro- and promote the thought leadership and promote all the other aspects that are needed, um, essentially, to build the trust uh, along the way with our with our users. So. It's not like we're unable to build the trust, but it just requires a lot more effort on our end to promote the trust with our users, just because we're at self mode companies. And this is the biggest detriment. And this is why essentially I'm, I'm really keen just to getting out of stealth as soon as possible and, and just trying to, and just starting to be, to be out there and getting the word out there as soon as possible. Yeah. Why do, why do companies do it? Then. I know it's kind of the, the best practice and, you know, what a lot of organizations do, but like what value does it add? Yeah, it's essentially, I think it's to kind of like show yourself and like bigger than you actually are. And when you come out of stealth, so for example, we'll come out of stealth probably a year after we, we start Seal Security, something like that. So um, showing, yeah, I have these number of public companies that are already working with me and my technology is already achieving that. So. It's kind of reflecting in a way that showing, yeah, we're serious and we're meaning business. So just using this opportunity to kind of like going from, okay, we're kind of like under under the radar. You, it's like a whisper. You, you only know about it if we talk to you or if you're uh, talking to the right circles, let's call it that way. But ever since you use this opportunity to make some noise, then it's not only the people that you reach out to, it's also people that are just, you know, out there and uh, are uh, interested about the issue that you're solving, are interested about startups, cybersecurity startups in general. So it's really um, um, like, yeah, running, running, essentially operating a company with one tied behind your back. So if I have to, <laughs> like, yeah, if I have to be honest. Yeah. I know it's only been, what, a, a year or so. Um, so there may not be a ton of great examples, but I'm curious to understand kind of, you know, your reflections on what you would do differently if you would restart SEAL again today. So I'll pause it and say, like, I know it's only been a year, but what what are some things you would, you would maybe do differently if you guys were to restart today? Wow. Uh, this is a really uh, difficult question. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, let me think about it. I think that one of the, um, the things that we might end up doing differently is we would essentially seek out more uh, business traction before uh, doing the funding run. 
Um, so we raised money around December last year. So coming into it, we were essentially uh, like three friends with an idea, 50 interviews essentially with users that um, that agreed essentially with us and, and uh, with our messaging and our and our approach. But what we did not have essentially at the time is, um, let's say like that, I don't know, the 10 users or X, use, X amount of users who are actually using our solution and, uh, you know, taking it forward. And I think it's, it's a, this was a mistake just because um, I think it will allow us to have a much clearer messaging when we talked with VCs about this issue. And yeah, so just coming into the conversation with the VCs, we would be much more intimately familiar with how our users are actually are going to use our solution in their day-to-day lives and just being able to answer all of these you know tricky questions let's say like that in a way that is much more grounded rather than just our opinion yeah no i I can imagine that would be uh you know very useful and would make for kind of more nuanced you know investor conversations i know you guys have uh, a good amount of traction today. If I remember correctly, you told me there's, you know, a handful of, of public companies and, and a few smaller companies that are, are leveraging SEAL. So I'm curious, sort of coming off of that that lesson learned, maybe what did you learn about the product or the company once you did start having more users in it? So I think the most important lesson, uh, it's something that... Um, we knew coming, we knew this coming into it, uh, just trying to develop SEAL. But what we are learning is how difficult it actually is, is the challenge of trying to sell your solution for two different personas. And in our case, we're dealing with both the security team, application security, product security, and the developers. So essentially running a playbook, a sales playbook, a marketing playbook, the targeting two personas is always more difficult than just trying to focus on one persona. Um, each persona has their own interest, their own way in which they uh, promote themselves within, within their organizations. And you really need to understand these two different personas uh, to being able to push steel into an organization. And this definitely has been a challenge on our end, but on the other end, it's also sort of like a moat, let's, let's, let's call it that way, where as soon as we are able and, and we feel like we are, we are making very big strides towards that, as soon as we are able to really understand these two personas and these two aspects of the organizations, it really makes them sing in tune and bring a solution that fits both of them, then we really essentially disrupt the market and 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 we we will be essentially the first company that that really uh, uh marries let's go that way the, these two uh different personas because uh just talking with our users it seems like it's a constant uh struggle between the security teams and developers just trying to uh prioritize and decide which security issues should be dealt with uh and on which cadence so Using SEAL, essentially, we, we hope to really uh, make this entire process much more simpler for everyone. Got On it. our specific, yeah, obviously, uh, um, problem space, which is open source vulnerabilities. Right. I'm curious, you know, like other sort of 
developer security solutions that have existed in the past who've, who've had to deal with a similar issue of having multiple personas. Have you like studied them at all or learned kind of what's worked to maybe bridge the gap and effectively involve two different stakeholders with competing incentives or competing priorities? Yeah. Um, yeah, we did. And uh, I think it stemmed down to just, so if you're targeting developers, uh, users who are much more technical um, rather than just targeting the security people, then the playbook becomes much more PLG in its nature. So you have to have some kind of usually an open source initiative, a free free tier model. Um, again, this this sort of like methods in which to encourage just plain users, day to day users, to just try out your system for their specific uh, very very uh, surgical and uh, use. But what you have to work on in parallel parallel is just understanding how you can take uh, these personas, these developers, and actually being able to promote it to a top-down sales effort um, yeah. with the security team and the uh, heads of engineering. So essentially, I, I'm going to quote a CISO that I've talked with, uh, like a public company CISO, where he mentioned, yeah, I, you can, sales security can come into the conversation and tell me to convince developers to start using our solution. But what will be much more simpler for, for me is if you will be able to show me you already have users in your organizations which are using the security. So now we only need to discuss how we can expand it. So uh, this it. is essentially the, the, the strategy and how we're planning to go forward. So this is also why our security patches are open source and why uh, a very big part of civil security is about being open source and about being public and transparent about the security value that we provide. And uh, knowing that essentially, coupling that with a business, a real business value for organizations and allow them to uphold their SLA on the security posture. Got it. Okay. So I'd love to maybe dig into that a little bit more because you know I can imagine if I put myself in that CISO shoes, yeah, that would be a lot more more credible as if I have you know X amount of developers already using it and wonderful, you know now I can just expand it or we can talk about how we expand it to more of an enterprise capability, um, you know. But I also recognize like getting developer attention is really challenging, right? And there's a million solutions that are trying to do that. So how, how do you think about you know, that first step of that go-to-market motion in terms of creating something useful and, and capturing the attention of, of developers. Yeah. If we were to talk about the general developer, then if we're being quite honest, I don't think they care about the issue, about open source yeah. vulnerabilities at all. So um, we don't have any real practical way to try to get them into the table. What we are able to do is really target the section of developers that are security conscious and usually they are the security champions in their organization and etc etc just they are in a position where they are responsible for security in some capacity and then in most of the cases they already use some kind of solution for to try to deal with this issue so in our case there's dependabot and uh, which is open source and 
there are open source tools that let them deal with this issue even for free, but we try to cater to the pain of uh, the fact that if you want to secure your open source supply chain at the moment, you have to sacrifice some productivity. This is just the fact of the, of, of the matters right now. And developers who are into this and are actually performing these uh, remediation efforts, then they're aware of it. We don't, they don't need us essentially to convince them about it. They're, like when we come into this conversation, this is one thing that I have much simpler going uh, for sale rather than Symmetria is where in Symmetria, we had to educate the market about uh, why they even need uh, a honeypot or deception platform. In, in seal security, we don't need to tell them, yeah, you need to secure your open source supply chain. They already know that they need to secure their open source supply chain. And it's just a matter of really finding the the right section of, of, of the populace where you target them and you make sure that your message is, is clear and loud for them. Yeah, got it. Okay. So <clears throat> that's interesting because, you know, on one hand, it's, uh, again, I'll, I'll say air quotes, easier, right, to sell into an environment where they recognize there's already a problem. Um, but it can still be challenging to sort of compel action and say, all right, why do I need to solve this right now? Right. It's been happening for as long as I've been in the security or the sort of, you know, software world. So. I'll probably be fine if I don't do anything. So how, how, do, how have you thought about um, you know, answering kind of the why now question? It's, um, it's interesting because we heard this um, from one of our actual users, you know, that you accused our solution right now, where they came into the conversation, why should I even care about it? I haven't, uh, we tried using an open source uh, security solution. It created too much noise. We stopped using it, and we are fine. We are we haven't experienced a risk, uh, like any significant incident. And um, so why? And my our answer to them, um, it's grounded in our own research, and we, this is also why one of the reasons why we're keen essentially to go out of stealth is the level of technical sophistication that is needed by attackers today to create a successful exploit is much lower than what was needed a year ago. And let me explain. So using LLMs and ChatGPT, you know, other, other such tools, you were able to just take, for example, a vulnerability description and then create a, uh, and tell it, hey, Mr. ChatGPT, can you please create a test that verifies if this vulnerability is real? And it would just go ahead and create a test case for you you know, although OpenAI is trying really hard to uh, try to limit these kind of use cases and try to block them, but from our own experience, it's very easy to circumnavigate them and get them to uh, and get ChatGPT essentially to uh, write exploits for you. So uh, we're kind of like at an interesting uh, intersection in time where hackers are going to have. Uh, Known vulnerabilities are going to be much more riskier for an organization because it will be much more easier for an attacker to exploit to exploit them um, right. using these tools. Got it. Got it. Okay. And is that something that you think is becoming widely 
understood or, or acknowledged? Or do you think that still has to become a little bit more, um, that's also just sort of, that understanding has to advance? I, I think people are starting to talk about it, but it's really hard right now to uh, discern, um, you know, put like, uh, social posts which are more about hey I, I use chat GPT here are like 50 news cases where it's like marketing yeah. uh, you know BS and uh, <laughs> you know actual use cases and actual researchers which are grounded in actual uh, and rinse and repeat and you know a structural uh, research effort where you're actually proving something and I, I, st- I still think it's quite early in the process of actual research demonstrating actual risk but from my my experience and you know our experience using these LLM tools internally for just our own technical um, necessities and our own technical infrastructure we have been able to demonstrate uh, the LLM capacity to create such exploits um, you know without essentially the the technical sophistication that was needed uh, before that so it's really scary for me personally because coming into it as a vulnerability expert, I I know firsthand how difficult it is to actually arm these exploits, how to actually create them, and it yeah. required a level of sophistication that was usually not available for the general public or even the general hacker. They had to use some kind of like readily made exploits, um, um, and this essentially really lowers the the knowledge that is needed. Yeah. You would know a lot more about this than than I would, but you know, in the sort of like cyber criminal, like hacker, you know, black market, would that become like a service that someone can offer is, hey, send me a list of vulnerabilities and I'll figure out how to exploit it basically, and that's my expertise. I'm not actually going to do the hacking, but I'm making a playbook for somebody else to go do it. It's interesting because what is certain, so if I understand your question correctly, what you're asking is if we're about to see a trend where attack, like hackers are selling the tool itself, not the actual yeah. vulnerability. And I don't think we'll see it in the near future just because how expensive exploits are at the moment at the black market. So you would want to use your early pusher advantage and just use it to, um, I don't know, to create a lot of exploits and sell them at the, at the, at the first mover advantage. And then later on when you have exploits becoming commodity, then would want to sell the tool and going into the market. So, I guess this process is going to take some time to uh, to run its course, but I do predict this is how it's going to play out. Got it. Okay. Well, I'd be a shitty hacker anyway, so that's you know <laughs> why I ask like it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, I, I'd love to actually pivot a little bit. Um, I appreciate you just telling me a little bit more about the business and just kind of how you're thinking about things, what you're working on right now. Another thing I'm always interested to hear about from founder CEOs like yourself is uh, sort of like your work-life harmony. You know, I talked with with founders who don't have a life. You know, they work 19 hours a day, six days a week. Uh, I talk with other founders who are on the road, right, three, four weeks a month. 
um, visiting customers, visiting investors, just all over the world. Then I talk with some who actually have it pretty figured out, right? They've got young kids and they're off the clock at five or 6 PM and spend time with their family every evening. Um, it's just, you know, something that they're able to, to, to prioritize. And then others who will say, you know what, I wake up at 5 AM and I go to the gym first thing every morning because that gets me in the zone and, you know, I have to take health and wellness very seriously. So I, I'd love just to hear sort of your point of view on like that work life integration. Um, and just as you think about obviously building a company, which is a huge amount of work and difficult and requires a lot of effort, but also, you know, there's more to life than just the company. So how, how do you think about that whole topic? It's a great topic because I think one of the lessons that I learned from Sanmetria was the disadvantages of grinding it out without a real purpose and a real driver behind it. So what I mean by that is that we would often spend 14, 15, 16 hours a day working you know, without any concrete goal that is, okay, I have to finish it up by tomorrow, just for the sake of it, just because we could. Um, but the disadvantages of it, and I do agree that it's better for the short term. So coming into, um, if you want to build a, a company that is more long-term than, let's say, like two or three years, that if you're actually aiming to build uh, a healthy organization, then I really think it's important to create this balance. But uh, on the other hand, really making sure that when there are the opportunities and when there are um, the goals that you need to uphold, then uh, using these essentially to, um, um, to, to essentially ask your employees and yourself to work more. So uh, as a CEO, I don't think any of what I said is applicable to me <laughs> because um, quite honestly, a lot of my work is external communication and I love it. Like I love doing it. I love being able to communicate with a lot of different people, but it also means that I have to be um, super responsive. And if someone sends me an email with a request that I, like I want to get back to them, then I'm not, most of the times I will not wait until, you know, the day after to just reply. So I'm going to make the best effort to uh, reply to them on the spot. And this is essentially the way that I treat almost every aspect of the business that is on my end, because I don't want to be uh, uh, the part of the organization that pulls everyone back. I want to be the one that is pulling everyone forward. So I'm, I want to demonstrate by example that, that like the efficiency and being able to work um, um, where the goal is very clear you are communicated effectively to the rest of the team. And I think that if you're able to accomplish that, then a lot of the grinding that is often like needed in startups is being end up uh, uh, optimized away. Let's go that way. Yeah. No, I, I like that approach. And uh, I would love to understand just as a leader, how you go about sort of setting that expectation with, with your team. That you know, obviously, you know, or people have to have lives outside of out of work, or it's important to have more dimensions to who you are as a person. Um, but there's also going to be times where we all have to work hard because there's a pressing deadline, there's a customer that needs something from us, whatever it may be. 
So how do you think about just sort of setting that expectation and sort of finding the right people that will fit in a culture like that? Yeah. So I think it all starts with communicating it to potential employees. Um, just stating how we envision doing the business and how we envision running the business. Uh, just being candid um, with the candidates. Um, I find that this approach is the best approach. We are very happy with the people that we recruited so far. And it is my experience at working that whenever the time uh, dictates and whenever we need them to uh, stay the long hours and achieve the uh, tough goals that require um, the extra grind, then they're up for it and they're happy to do it. But this comes hand in hand with our respect for their personal time and their lives outside the office um, and essentially demonstrating it in a day on like on a weekly basis, let's say like, like that. And then they're able uh, to see that it's not just talk. We are, we are walking, we're walking the walk and not just talking the talk. So, um, yeah. Um, and the second part is essentially just leading from a, uh, a personal, personal example. So if there is something that needs to, to be done and, you know, we need to stay like up late until like in the office and, until 10 p.m., 11 p.m., whatever, just into the night, then I need to be there. I need to be uh, with, the, with the employees, um, just, you know, like helping them, you know, helping them in any way that I can, um, because it demonstrates that I care about it. And if they're not staying um, and, you know, I'm taking it uh, home and, and you know, be, being relaxed about it, because I think it sends a wrong signal to the employees when you do that as a leader. So, um I think it's all like some, some, summing it up. So personal, uh, yeah, personal leadership and just setting the example and, and be candid and open about how you want the culture to be like in your organization. Yeah. Are the things you do, you do personally to decompress or that you just focus on outside of work, like hobbies, family, sports, exercise, anything, anything like that, that, that works for you? Yeah, so I do work out. Um, I do find it's very um, like I go into the gym, like deep in thoughts, like how how should I do things, and I ended up going out of it without thinking anything about the business. So just putting my head all together yeah. and just you know focusing on the grind and uh, the challenge of uh, breaking a personal record. So uh, it's kind of like forces you into this. Um, and like a uh, state of mind of letting go of work. So I find it useful for me. Uh, but the second part is also uh, getting a lot with friends and family, just spending time with them. I also find it very helpful for me because obviously with them, I am talking about other things and, you know, not just about the business. So it really allows me to kind of take my head off uh, the business when I need it. Yeah. Cool. And also play chess. <laughs> this is slightly yeah. more mentally toxic, toxic than, uh, than just uh, working out. Yeah, helps with, with business strategy. <laughs> cool. All right, Itamar, this has been great, man. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to uh, to chat with me today. Um, we're going to wrap it up with the, uh, the rapid fire round. Um, it's how we finish every interview here. And basic premise is I ask a bunch of quick questions and you share whatever comes top of mind. Sound good? I'm ready. All right, cool. Uh, what is your favorite book? 
Harry Potter. Any particular <laughs> Harry Potter or just the whole series? So I grew up on them. Uh, I was a young child when the first one came out. Uh, I read the three first ones in Hebrew and going to cool. the future, I switched to English. I much enjoyed reading the, uh, the, the English version, if I'm being honest. Just reading it in, mm-hmm. uh, in Jackie Rowling's own words, it was much better experience for me. But yeah, I, I really loved the, uh, the fantasy world that she created. Uh, so yeah yeah cool uh if you could change one thing about the cybersecurity industry what would it be wow that's a loaded question i think that um what i would really want to see but i don't think will happen is less involvement from vc uh Hmm. vc investors and what i mean by that is a lot of time you have the security professionals themselves being involved in uh, certain VC uh, investors, you know, as advisors or even as LPs in some cases. And in, in some situations, it's really challenging getting into a situation, just uh, into an organization, just because uh, the person who's running the thing has some kind of like uh, their own interest, which kind of like block you. Um, yeah. And yeah, I just just think that um, it's really a shame that it's not more out there in the open. Just as and like it's like sort of like a a known secret. Let, let let's say it like that, yeah. like in the industry where everybody knows that this happened, but nobody's actually doing anything to try to change it. But yeah, this is it. Yeah, it's like the worst kept secret in in <laughs> yeah, the industry exactly. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Who's someone in, in cybersecurity that you really admire or a couple of people, if, if a few more than one comes to mind? So I'm going to give the example of the CEO of uh, Symmetria, who was the CEO of Symmetria, Gadi Evron. So uh, we have been friends after my journey in Symmetria, um, but I really appreciated his ability um, to network, essentially. And he was really... So he was one of the, the the oldies, essentially one of the people who have been from you know the the the, the end of the nineties, early two thousand. So he was um, he was back then, and he had the experience and the connections. But I really appreciated his um, how he was able to maintain it over the years and really use his experience to both contribute to his network and and, and just just uh, for his for his sake as well. Yeah. Very cool. What's the most challenging thing about your job? I think that the most challenging thing about my job is the solitude. Uh, Mm. In a way, um, there's one CEO, there's one leader, and I am that person. And this means that the responsibility responsibility is on me. Uh, But no matter how you uh, you phrase it, how you think about it, uh, in the end, like, a few weeks from now, when people will look at SEAL, uh, I'll be the face behind it. And I'll, like, people will treat SEAL's success or failure as my success or failure. And also my co-founders, but me as a CEO first and foremost. So um, it's a responsibility. And it's definitely a thing that you have to rise to. I don't think it's something that you have to take for granted. Uh, for me, what helps is consulting 
with just a lot of people. I'm fortunate enough to have a lot of friends who have undergone this journey, have been CEOs, have been first-time CEOs like me, and they're able to contribute uh, from their experience, helping me not repeat the same mistakes, and uh, hopefully. And, uh, um, and this is also what I really like about the Israeli tech scene in, in particular, where we do feel the, com- com- um, uh, the fellowship between yeah. different founders and how everyone are really willing to help each other, even without any skin in the game, you know, without, without percentage of ownership, advisorship, or any other such, uh, such reason. So they just help just because other people have helped them. So I'm making sure, obviously, to pay it forward. But, um, yeah, this is the biggest challenge in how we deal with it. Yeah. Last one. If you could uh, go back in time and have a drink with your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give him? Wow. Um, go to therapy for, uh, earlier. I think. <laughs> it's <laughs> a good one. I think, I think this is a topic that is, uh, in recent years, it's getting, uh, it's getting more outspoken. And I think it's, it's, a good, it's, it's a good trajectory. And I think a lot more people should share about their personal experience with therapy and how it helped them. So for me, I've been three years in therapy um, in my adult life and it really helped me uh, change my perspective and how and become a better person. So um, I would definitely advise my 20 years old to undergo this process uh, yeah. earlier. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing, Itzamar, and thank you so much for, for joining me today. Loved having the chance to, to chat with you. Thank you very much, Joy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for your questions. It's been a wonderful time.